Good morning. Good to see you this morning. God bless you for coming. I'm sitting here singing and I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> so I stopped singing. Hopefully it'll hold out for the rest of the service. <clears throat> I want to welcome any visitors who are with us today. If you're here for the first time, we do have packets of information we'd like you to have, but we need to know where you're sitting. So just take a moment and raise your hand and our greeters will make sure that uh, they get the packets to you. Folks up in the balcony as well, we have greeters all around. And uh, again, we welcome you. Love to meet you afterwards. If you'll come back to the conference room, that would be great. Love to see you back there and uh, spend some time with you if you are a first-time visitor. We are, uh, again, as a church, we're in the midst of a campaign to raise the monies necessary for the purchase of the acreage behind us and alongside of us. And uh, as of today... 60% of what you pledged is in, 40% is due by the end of this month. So we want you to prayerfully uh, follow through on whatever promise you made, and <clears throat> we'll trust that God will give us the resources. It's an amazing testimony, because uh, it seems like this time of the year we're asking you for a lot, especially in the context of the economy as it stands right now. And so to me, it's just an amazing testimony of, of your faithfulness to your God, to our God, in the way in which you have been giving. So we praise the Lord for that. We're in the middle of a, uh, actually at the beginning of a series of messages that I want to run through December and <clears throat> really focus our attention on the person of Mary. Uh, last year at Christmas time, I preached a series of messages messages called the five women of the genealogy and we only got through four of them the last one of course was Mary so we want to spend more time on Mary focusing on who she is and more specifically <clears throat> we want to take a look at how it affects the relationships that exist between Roman Catholics and Protestants because you see in the context of our faith as evangelical Protestants we hold to a concept of sola scriptura, which very simply means scripture alone. That is what decides truth for us. That is what the Protestant Reformation was rooted in. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gracia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Now, there's a reason why the solas are in there, the alone part. There's a reason why the Luthers and the Calvins and the Zwinglies and the Knoxes and all of the other reformers who brought us through the period of the Protestant Reformation talked about scripture alone, faith alone, <clears throat> and uh, grace alone. The reason is, in reaction to Roman Catholic teaching at that time, uh, the truth of scripture was relegated to only one of three uh, components that comprise truth. In Roman Catholic theology, they believe that the uh, scriptures are the word of God. They also believe that tradition and reason must be factored into the teaching of scripture in order to come up with what they call dogmas or doctrines that they also say constitute truth. Well, Protestants reacted against that and basically said that has no basis in Scripture, that Scripture must stand all by itself. It must stand alone. 
And for these many centuries now, since the Protestant Reformation, that has fundamentally divided Roman Catholics from Protestants. The whole issue of what is the definition of truth and how is truth determined. We believe that the scriptures alone constitute truth in contrast to Roman Catholic theology, which teaches that tradition and scripture and reason are kind of mixed up into a pie and out comes truth. Now last week I introduced you to the doctrine of amplification where a particular scripture is taken in the context uh, or I should say out of context in uh, reference to Mary, in reference to who she was, who she is, what she came to do, who, uh, how she relates to the person of Christ and how she relates to the church, certain scriptures have been extracted out of the context, have been amplified upon, mixed with tradition, mixed with certain of man's reasoning, and out comes certain dogmas and doctrines that today continue to divide Roman Catholics from Protestants. One of the things I believe we need to understand, and as this series unfolds, I hope it will become evident, is that Protestants have underplayed the role of Mary in the same way that Catholics have overplayed the role of Mary. Maybe not to the intensity that the Roman Catholics have, but certainly we in Protestant, evangelical Protestantism, we need to understand the special role and the special, special function of this amazing woman. Uh, history records her as one who uh, as the scripture says, all generations will call her blessed. I've entitled this series Ave Maria, which sounds pretty Catholic to you, I'm sure. But Ave Maria simply are the first two words of what the angel said when the angel greeted Mary. Hail Mary. That's what Ave Maria means. Hail Mary. Last week we looked at how the uh, Catholic Church has taken the doctrine of ampl amplification and has taken Mary to a different level. For example, Mary as the second Eve. And you will recall, and I hope if you have worn here last week, you'll get this, the, the message to, to listen to it closely. But Catholic teaching on Mary as the second Eve inevitably leads to a salvation plan that, def that really depends upon man's full cooperation. It's kind of an eclectic plan of salvation. Because if Mary is the second Eve, in the same way that Jesus is the second Adam, uh, she becomes an integral part of that salvation plan. And as we will see later in this series, uh, the Catholic Church actually does teach a doctrine where Mary is called the co-redeemer. We'll show you the inklings of that, or the first stages of that, in this message this morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Again, last week we talked about Mary Theotokos, which means mother of God, and the way in which the Catholic Church has amplified, again, certain scriptures, uh, one in particular where Elizabeth, in speaking to Mary, speaks of the child in her as the, speaks of her as the mother of my Lord, the mother of Kyrios, the mother of God. Uh, this is what Elizabeth said to Mary. And from that statement of Elizabeth to Mary, the whole doctrine of Theotokos was introduced 
and eventually embraced by the Catholic Church. And we took a look at their catechism and what they teach concerning Theotokos the last time we were together. And Mary as the second Eve, Mary as the mother of God, they form the background, if you will, to the one we're going to take a look at today in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It says there, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the, these are the words that Jesus or that, the, that God the Father had spoken to, to, the, to the serpent after the fall of Adam and Eve. This was the curse that he placed on Satan. This is what God told Satan what was going to happen. He said that in the course of time, the seed of the woman, which means someone who is fully human, is going to crush your head. And in the process, you, Satan, will bruise his heel. So it's not going to be a pain-free crushing of the head of Satan. Now, the whole rest of Scripture, the whole of the Old Testament, is the story of the battle, the war, between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. You can study every book of the Old Testament, and you will see the evidence of the seed of the woman, whether it be in Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Israel, spoken of by the prophets, given to us through the law, as you see all of that unfolding in the Old Testament, you'll see the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, is spoken of all the way through the Old Testament. Now, as evangelical Protestants, we believe that the seed of the woman is none other than Jesus Christ, that he alone is the one who will crush the head of Satan. Irenaeus of Lyons in 150 AD, to show you how far back this goes, how far back this teaching goes, rightly identified Jesus as this spoken and prophetic seed of the woman. So you'll see the two parallel lines uh, in the Old Testament where the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman uh, war against each other. There is this battle. Satan seeks to destroy the seed of the woman. Now, when you study the Old Testament closely, you will see that Satan came within one king of accomplishing his feat. Within one king. If one person had not survived, the whole of the seed of the woman would have been destroyed. Yet God always has his people. God always remains with his people. He is never left without a people. And so you see those lines beginning to form in the Old Testament. And do you know where those two parallel lines cross? On the cross of Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman. That is Christ. On that cross crushes the head of Satan. And on that cross, Satan bruises his heel. Satan's fate has been sealed. The kingdom of God will go forth. Satan cannot hinder it. God will gather by the power of his Holy Spirit the elect from the four corners of the earth. And Satan can do nothing to hinder or to stop that process. 
I will build my church, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are to storm the gates of hell. We are to attack the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Satan, who has been crushed, whose power has been destroyed, has no victory over Christ. Now you say, well, now I look around in this world and I see Satan evident everywhere. And certainly we do. Evil will be present with us until Christ comes and ultimately destroys all evidences or all appearances of evil. We know that. But as far as the plan of salvation, the plan of redemption is concerned, as far as God accomplishing his purposes through his shed blood, Satan can do nothing to stop that because Christ is the seed of the woman. And early on, all the way back to the second, first, and even part of the, uh, the third century, this doctrine of the seed of the woman, being Christ, became embraced by and, and was, 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 was realized by the early church as being the seed of the woman, being none other than Jesus Christ. That's what Bible-believing Christians teach. But now as you're looking at Genesis 3.15, I want to show you how this all happened. Why Roman Catholics now believe that Mary is the seed of the woman. Not Christ, but Mary is the seed of the woman, they say. The word there that you see, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, that means that word is seed, between your seed and hers, he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. That word for seed was somehow mysteriously changed when the Latin Vulgate version of the Old Testament was produced from a neuter to a feminine. Whenever anything appeared as a neuter, it was neither masculine nor feminine. That's what neuter means. But somehow in the Latin Vulgate version of the Old Testament, that word was either by mystery or by fraud changed to a feminine noun. And there was a reason for that. You see, Catholics like us believe in the virgin birth. There is no doubt Roman Catholics believe in the virgin birth. But from the perspective of an evangelical, the virgin birth is necessary since the seed of the woman, that is Christ, cannot be stained with the sin nature of man. For him to come as fully God and fully man, he could not bear in himself the sin nature that you and I are born with. We are all born in the loins of Adam, which means we are born with a nature to sin. We are born in original sin, so to speak. You and I don't have to learn how to be sinful. We become sinful by nature. But in order for Christ to accomplish salvation, he had to come and fully embrace total manhood, fully embrace his own godhood, and in that great, what theologians call, hypostatic union, where the two merge into one, we have the infinite God-man. And that is the only way you and I could ever be saved. God himself had to come in the form of a man, 
to be tempted in every point like unto us, to experience every temptation you and I will ever experience, and to pay in full in his manhood, to pay in full the price, the penalty for our sins. We call that the atonement. So he had to come as fully man, and he had to come as fully God. Fully God and fully man. And thus, Roman Catholics and evangelical Protestants, we all believe the same thing, that the impregnation of Mary was by the Holy Spirit. That the father of this child is none other than God the Father, and the seed that was planted was planted by the Father himself. Well, now, in Roman Catholic theology, this meant that Jesus must be born not only of the Holy Spirit in total purity, but also through the unstained nature of the woman. Not only was the Father, God the Father, totally holy and without blemish, Catholic theologians have reasoned that the mother must also be sinless. The mother must also be immaculate. And that is where we come up with, or they come up with, the doctrine they call the immaculate conception. Thus, the Father was God, he's holy, he's unstained with human sin, and Mary, his mother, also had to be unstained by human sin. They reason. Thus, the seed of the woman is Mary, in whom there can be no original sin. This is the doctrine of amplification working at its best. She becomes, if you remember what I talked about last week, that she was the second Eve, she becomes the victorious second Eve. The first Eve disobeyed. The first Eve was defeated by Satan. The second Eve is Mary, who was obedient and victorious over Satan. This is the reasoning. Not only must the father be pure, but the mother must also be pure. So they reasoned that Mary was born as a human being, but without any sin, and that she remained sinless for her entire life. So much so that one day God looked at her, just as he did Enoch and Elijah, and said, you know what? You're closer to my home today than we are to yours. And he raptured them up. He raptured Enoch and Elijah to him. They passed or bypassed death. The reasoning of the Roman Catholic Church is that because she was sinless, what was good for, uh, what was good for Enoch and good for Elijah was also good for her. And we'll come to that in just a moment. Let's take a look at what some of the teaching is in the Roman Catholic Church concerning this whole idea of Mary being the seed of the woman and this whole idea of the Immaculate Conception. And I'll cite these for you as you look at them up on the screen. I'll just read them for you, and you'll see that I'm not making this up. This is not an anti-Catholic message. I hope you understand that by now, that there are differences between Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants. There are things that we don't believe that they believe, and there are things that they believe that we don't believe, and vice versa. Uh, the issues that separate us are fundamentally rooted in the belief that anything you believe, anything you hold to, any doctrine that you embrace must be rooted in the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. But take a look at some of the teaching. From among the descendants of Eve, they say, 
God chose the Virgin Mary to be the mother of his son. Full of grace, Mary is the most excellent fruit of redemption. From the first instant of her conception, she was totally preserved from the stain of original sin, and she remained pure from all personal sin throughout her life. I didn't make that up. Or, to become the mother of the Savior, Mary was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. The angel Gabriel, at the moment of the Annunciation, salutes her as full of grace. In fact, in order for Mary to be able to give the free assent of her faith to the announcement of her vocation, it was necessary that she be wholly born by God's grace. You're going to see later on that when Roman Catholic teaching goes even one step further and says that she had to agree to this. And had she not agreed to this, the plan of redemption was in peril. Uh, so her free will exercised became part and parcel to God's plan of redemption, they reason. Through the centuries, again from their catechism, the church has become even more aware that Mary, full of grace through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. That is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses, as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854, quote, the, blessed, the most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. You catching this? Mary, they say, was sinless. The splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception comes wholly from Christ. She is redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her son. Now, personally, I don't know how they can make that jump given what they have said previously. The Father blessed Mary more than any other created person in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, as I read that passage that Paul wrote, he is speaking of all of you and all of us, all who are called saints in Christ. We are the ones that have all the rights and privileges that have been granted us in the heavenly places by the blood of Christ, not just Mary. And it says, and chose her in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. There again, that speaks of the church. That speaks of all who pronounce faith in Christ. That is what Ephesians chapter 1 says, that you and I were blessed by God in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ. Not just Mary, but us, those of us who know and trust him as Savior and Lord. The splendor of an entirely unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instant of her conception, comes wholly from Christ, they say. Well, we would agree. The fathers of the Eastern tradition call the mother of God, notice Theotokos is used there, call the mother of God the all-holy, Panaglia, and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. By the grace of God, 
Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. That's what they mean when they say, she said, let it be done according to your word. At the announcement, they say, that she would give birth to the Son of the Most High without knowing man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary responded with the obedience of faith. Watch this now. Be careful. Certain that with God nothing will be impossible. And then they quote her. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Thus, giving her consent to God's word, Mary becomes the mother of Jesus, espousing the divine will for salvation wholeheartedly without a single sin to restrain her, she gave herself entirely to the person and to the work of her son. She did so in order to serve the mystery of redemption with him and dependent on him by God's grace. That smells of co-redeemer to me. As St. Irenaeus says, being obedient, she became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. It's sad how Irenaeus was, was translated uh, out of context. Notice what Irenaeus says. Irenaeus makes it clear that she, being obedient, became the cause of salvation for herself. How, why did she need to be saved? Saved from what? Redeemed from what? If she was sinless and born without that sin nature, and if she remained sinless for all of her life, then what does she need to be saved from? And why, when she sings the great Magnificat in the presence uh, of Elizabeth, does she refer to the seed in her womb as my Lord and my Savior? My Savior. What does she need to be saved from? Hence, not a few early fathers gladly assert, the catechism teaches, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. Now, remember what I told you last week before we go any further. The scripture teaches us that there were two Adams. One is the head of the human race, and one is the head of, one, one is the, head of the divine race, or the church. Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. Adam is referred to as the first Adam. He fell in disobedience. Christ conquered sin and death. The first Adam failed. The second Adam was victorious. From that doctrine, from the, the two Adams that the scripture clearly teaches, especially in Romans chapter 5, the Roman Catholic Church has now taken the wife of Adam, which is Eve, speaks of her disobedience, and then speaks of the second Eve, which is Mary and her obedience. Are, are you seeing the parallel here? Adam, Eve, Christ, Mary. Adam, Eve, disobedient, fall of the human race. Christ, Mary, obedient, redemption for sin. Many Roman Catholic people, and we're finding this out on some of the blogs, many Roman Catholic people 
do not know what the church teaches. They have no clue. When you tell them this, many Roman Catholics believe that the Immaculate Conception speaks of the birth of Jesus. And they don't understand that it's not the birth of Jesus that the Immaculate Conception speaks of. It's the birth of Mary, that she was born without sin. So it says there, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith. Comparing her with Eve, they call Mary the mother of the living and frequently claim death through Eve, life through Mary. Well, now let's see how this doctrine takes off. Again, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, the doctrine of Mary being the second Eve, the doctrine of Mary being the seed of the woman, takes off into a direction that is amazing. Mary becomes, as God is the king of heaven, Mary becomes the queen of heaven. Revelation, take your Bibles and look at Revelation chapter 12. This is, this is something that's been impressed on my mind since I was a little boy. As many of you know, or some of you don't know, I was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, I was raised in Catholic schools, and I attribute much of what I know today about salvation to what I learned inside of the Catholic Church. I believe I was regenerated while still in the Catholic Church. I wasn't converted until later. But I believe that God taught me many things. This is not, as I said, a sermon that is to blast Roman Catholics because there are, and you may disagree with me, but you would be wrong. <laughs> there are many Roman Catholics who know the Lord. Many Roman Catholics who, you know, we make it harder to become a Christian than it really is. The work was done by Christ. All of us, listen to me, point to yourself right now. All of us, I'm pointing to myself, we are all saved by the skin of our teeth. There is not one here listening or watching that is saved because of anything inherent in you. And so for us to set up some sort of non-biblical standard about what it means to become a Christian, what did Christ say? What, does, what, do, the scriptures, what do the scriptures teach? Put your faith and your trust in him. Confess him with your mouth. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess him as your Lord and Savior. That makes you a Christian. When you trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you have become a Christian. Many Roman Catholics are Christians in the real biblical sense of the word. And just like many of us, some of their other doctrines are all messed up. Why do you think there are so many denominations in Protestantism? Because our doctrines are all messed up. So just as Roman Catholics have many of their doctrines, especially Mariology, all messed up, we have some of ours all messed up. We have Arminians, we have Calvinists, we have, uh, we have Fundamentalists, we have Charismatics, we have Baptists, we have Presbyterians, we dip babies, or we sprinkle babies and we dip adults. We, we have all kinds of modes of baptism. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We put them under three times, sometimes we only put them under once. We sprinkle, we pour, we spit, we do everything else to baptize the babies. We, we don't have it all right. None of us have it right. Sometimes we Presbyterians pride ourselves in our intellect. 
And we don't have a lot of things right. Fundamentally, the core values of what we believe are true and scripturally defensible. But there are so many things that we need to understand about the simplicity of the gospel. That Christ and Christ alone is our Savior. He died on the cross before there were Catholics or Protestants or Baptists or Presbyterians. There were just Jews and Gentiles, if you will recall. But look at Revelation chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. This is a special verse to me because it has a lasting impression on my mind. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now keep in mind as you're reading this passage, we're reading about the end times. Revelation is a book that uses symbol and idioms and certain expressions to convey deeper truths. So when the book of Revelation speaks of a dragon coming out of the sea or a beast with seven heads or, or a statue with iron, and etc., these are all symbols because it is called apocalyptic literature. You don't read apocalyptic literature the same way you would read, say, for example, the Chronicles or the book of Numbers, which are historical books, or even the book of Acts, which is an historical book. The rules of interpretation change whenever you change the style of literature. Apocalyptic literature is meant to be eschatological. It's meant to be symbolic in order to convey deeper truths. So we need to now interpret what this sign is that appears in heaven. Uh, who is this person clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, etc. Now, when I was a little boy, every day when I walked to school, and I walked six blocks to school in five feet of snow and all that stuff, uh, in those days, we ran past Protestant churches. Literally, we were taught to do that. Now, I know they don't teach that today, but back in the 50s, that's what we learned. Run past them. Uh, all the Protestant churches between my home and St. Mary's School, which is where I was, was raised, uh, all, of those, all of those churches from my home to that spot, I ran by. All the doors were red, which made it even more scary because we were taught that if you stand there too long, the devil's going to come out and grab you. Literally. I'm not kidding you. And I would run past those churches. And when I came to my school, on the first floor of the school were all the elementary kids. We all looked forward to the day when we would go up to the second floor, which is where the junior high kids were. We would then be grown-ups. Now, between the first floor and the second floor, there was a life-size, actually it was bigger than that, it's probably closer to 8 to 10 feet, statue of Mary standing over the world with her foot crushing the head of Satan. This is a picture of that statue. This is what it looks like. 
For you see, it is alleged that St. Catherine Labour, a sister in France in 1830, was given the grace to have Mary visit with her three times, so they say. The second time, St. Catherine saw her standing on a globe with rays of light streaming from her hands. And around Mary were the words, O Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Mary told St. Catherine to have a medal made that looked exactly like what she saw. And St. Catherine allegedly did what Mary told her. The medals were called the Medals of the Immaculate Conception. And as soon as people started wearing the medals, it is alleged that certain miracles started to take place. People started calling these medals the Miraculous Medals. On the front side of the medal, you will see, if you look closely, Mary as the victorious woman of Genesis. Pope Paul, John Paul II, in 1987, made this statement. God himself put enmities between the woman and the serpent, a battle to be carried on in that monumental struggle against the powers of darkness, which continues throughout human history. This is in an article called Mother of the Redeemer, and you see the reference there. On the medal, we see Mary with her foot crushing the head of Satan. And again, I'm quoting Pope John Paul II. She who is at once full of grace was brought into the mystery of Christ in order to be his mother and thus the holy mother of God. Remains in that mystery as the woman spoken of by the book of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You see, I'm not making this up. Now she has been declared to be the seed of the woman. She is the one who crushes the head of Satan. The 12 stars, uh, if we can put that picture of that statue back up, up there, the 12 stars that go around her crown uh, are the, the, the stars that represent each of the apostles. You see, she's standing on the world. There are the two medals, one on the right, one on the left. She is crushing the head of the serpent. That serpent's head always stuck out at me. As I'm climbing the steps, it was a big head, and the mouth was open, and she was crushing with her feet, very peacefully, the head of Satan. There was no doubt what the church wanted me to believe. There was no doubt what I grew to believe. That is that Mary is the co-redeemer. Mary is the one that Genesis speaks of as the victorious woman that crushes the proud head of the devil. Popes teach, and leave that picture up there if you would please, popes teach that the two hearts are surmounted by flames, symbolizing a burning love that existed between Jesus and Mary, his co-redeemer, accomplishing the work of redemption, each in their proper way. Around the oval frame of the metal, encircling the cross, the M and the two hearts we see a crown of 12 stars that's above the apostles. And this is the reference to the great sign in the book of Revelation we just read of in Revelation chapter 12. The woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Catholics teach 
that the woman engaged in this battle with this huge red dragon that Revelation speaks of, the ancient serpent who is called the devil or Satan, is the queen of the apostles, the mother of God, the mother of the church, the seed of the woman, the second Eve, none other than Mary. And again, I quote, you can put this up there, please. The enmity foretold at the beginning is confirmed in the apocalypse. That's another word for the book of Revelation. The, final, the book of the final events of the church and the world in which there occurs the sign of the woman, this time clothed with the sun. Mary, mother of the incarnate word, is placed at the very center of that enmity, that struggle which accompanies uh, the history of humanity on earth and the history of salvation itself. You see, what Catholics believe is just as Jesus became Christus Victor, or the Victor Christ, she became Mulier Fortis, the woman of valor. In fact, she becomes, as you're going to see the next time we get together, she becomes the woman of valor that Proverbs 31 is speaking of. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. And in Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, that alphabetical sequence of the characteristics of the, valor, the valorous woman is none other, they say, than Mary herself. That's why armies have marched with banners, one holding the victor Christ, one holding the Molière Fortis, or the woman of valor, one holding the banner of Christ, and the other holding the banner of Mary. You see, these doctrines, friends, are important to us. It is important for us to know when we speak of this vision in heaven, this woman who is clothed with the sun, this woman who is about to render judgment. This is apocalyptic literature. This is symbolic literature. It represents Christ and his church. It represents his invisible kingdom, there and his visible kingdom here. Our church historically is rooted in the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. The foundation or the rock is none other than Christ himself. That's what he told Peter when he said, you are Peter, a stone, a piece of a larger rock. And on this larger rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are a piece of that rock. The rock, the foundation, is defined for us in Scripture as none other than Christ. It is Christ who is pictured in Revelation 12. It is the coming judge who does battle with the dragon and binds his hands and feet and casts him into hell forever and ever. It is not Mary. It is him. It is Christ. He is the center of our salvation. He is the reason you and I possess salvation. He is the one who crushed the head of the, the evil one. He is the one where the radiance of God's sunlight shines through him. He is the one who stands over the world, and he is the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, you see, here is where one scripture where the, uh, where the noun was changed from a neuter to a feminine, mysteriously, nobody knows how that happened, all of a sudden becomes the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. 
and he, eventually the doctrine of assumption that Mary never died, that she was assumed body and soul into heaven, even though the scripture says it is appointed unto every man to die once. And so these doctrines begin to form and history begins to draw battle lines and, and, and schisms split and divide the church and you have the Eastern Church and the Western Church, Eastern Orthodoxy and, and the Western Rome, Roman Catholic uh, churches and then out of that comes the Reformation and the splitting of the churches again. Is it any wonder why in John 17 when Jesus prayed the great high priestly prayer one of the things that he prayed for was that they all may be one. Why do you think he prayed that? Unless we were in danger of becoming many. You see, when you put doctrines into the hands of men and their foolish minds begin to wander into what they believe to be reasonable or what they believe to be traditional, the scriptures get relegated to a third of the pie, if you will. The scriptures are out here that we will deal with them somewhere. And that's why, you know, in Roman Catholic churches, you don't see um, too many people carrying their Bibles to church. You don't see too many people looking or listening to exegetical sermons where the scriptures are expounded phrase by phrase. They're usually done in the form of homilies, be kind to one another. Be good to one another. Now that is not to say that Christ is never central because he is. Even in the Catholic Mass, Christ is central. They've messed up what it means uh, for his body and blood, to, what he meant when he said, this is my body and this is my blood. That whole doctrine of transubstantiation uh, is another form of the doctrine of amplification. Uh, you know, and, but we don't all have it right either. And, and so what I'm hoping that we can accomplish from this is to see the foundation of what we believe. What did Protestants fight for? Why was it so important for them to fight for these things? Why did Martin Luther nail his 95 theses to the wall of the church in Wittenberg? Why did he do that? Why did he put his life at risk? Why did Christians die as martyrs? What did it cost them? This is your root. These are your legacies. These are your, this is your heritage. And so it's important for us to know what they believed and why it was different and why a protest was necessary. Why Protestantism had to happen. And it all boils down to what I said at the beginning of this message, doesn't it? Sola Scriptura. Sola Gratia. Sola Fide. The three trumpets of the Protestant Reformation. Long ago, our mainline denominations have abandoned Sola Scriptura. And in name only do many of them profess Sola Fide or faith alone. And yet verbally they will say, yes, we believe sola gracia, that we are saved by grace alone. But do they really? Is the gospel in mainline 
evangelical or mainline Protestantism today, and yes, even in evangelical Protestantism today, is the gospel being lost. There is coming a day, and it will be soon, when I personally will denounce being an evangelical because of what evangelicalism is coming to mean. Evangelicals today call themselves in name only evangelicals and have long ago abandoned some of them sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gracia. It's going to be something that happened, oh, 20, 30, 40 years ago when it was a matter of pride to call yourself a fundamentalist. We love that term, fundamentalist. But then the legalism set in. Uh, then the rules set in. And Christian liberty was thrown right out the window. And rules of salvation and what salvation should look like and what a Christian should look like and smell like and talk like and act like became the basis of much of the preaching. And so many of us who years ago called ourselves fundamentalists abandoned that term in favor of becoming evangelicals where we believe in the finality of scripture and the three trumpets of the reformation but evangelicals are abandoning that the seminaries are no longer teaching it in many places and I don't know what the next term will be but we cannot ever ever abandon those three trumpets of the reformation this church can never abandon that. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? You'll have a man standing up here, or a woman, standing up here, who will one day preach to you a false gospel. To me, that's why it's important for the next generation to get it. They've got to get it because we are rapidly becoming the minority. And there will be few churches left in this country where sola fide and sola gracia and sola scriptura are fundamental to the belief and core systems of that church. And the gospel will have been lost. That is why it's important for us to see how these doctrines came to be, how the church abandoned scripture. And all kinds of funny things began to happen. That's why I believe our worship needs to be integrated. What I mean by that is old and young. I mean by that we need our young people writing hymns. We need our young people playing instruments. And it needs to be tempered by our old people who sing the hymns. And the old people who encourage the young. There was a day when all of the hymn writers were young people. All of the hymn writers were geniuses. Today we have something called contemporary Christian music. And in contemporary Christian music, there is a plethora, a plethora of artists who are focused on the sovereignty of God. Their music we sing in our churches. And yet, we look at that and we say, well... We need the good old hymns, and we do. We do need the good old hymns. But we have a whole new generation coming up behind us that has to own in their own culture, in their own music, in their own environment, in their own genius, 
the same gospel that you and I hand down to them. If we don't get it, and if we don't pass it on, if we sit there and we moan and we groan about what we like and what we dislike, then our kids will moan and groan about what they like and dislike. There needs to be integration in worship of old and young, old hymns, new hymns, old songs, new songs, old approaches, new approaches, old arrangements, new arrangements, so that we can get it and that our kids can get it. You know, it was amazing to me, and I'll close with this. It was amazing to me this morning. I saw these kids up here. And all the kids up here. And all the choir members down the aisles. And I thought to myself, as I watched the faces on these kids, I watched their faces. I watched them sing and watched the little boy in the front here directing. Do you see him? Everybody see him? He's directing. That's Damon's son. <laughs> He's an actor just like his father. I, I saw their faces. I looked at what they were doing. They're getting the message. They're getting the gospel. Did you see the words they were singing? Did you see the fact that they had them memorized? That they knew what they were singing? And then when the kids went and sat down, I looked at our choir. And I looked at the faces on the kids in that choir, the adults standing behind them and the children sitting in the front, singing with joy in their hearts, singing the words as though they understand what they mean. So what are we going to do? Are we going to say that their generation's music is wrong and only our generation's music is right? Or are we going to say that the same Holy Spirit that motivated the, John, uh, the Charles Wesleys and the Horatio Spaffords and all of the other great hymn writers that we have in our books are the is the same Holy Spirit that's going to take a hold of this little boy down here or this little girl down here and he or she is going to put to pen, put to paper, thoughts, doctrines, songs about the Lord and about their faith in him. Now, some of them will not last. Many songs in contemporary Christian music will not last. Just as thousands of hymns did not stand the test of time. That book that you have in front of you, the hymnal, that is not all the hymns that the church has ever had. There have been thousands and thousands and thousands of hymns, but only certain ones stand the test of time. I believe something like shine, Jesus, shine will stand the test of time. Or he is exalted. Or many of the songs that we sing, but others will hit the trash heap just like many of the hymns did. Why am I telling you about this? This is just one example of how the church needs to get it. That there's a whole new generation coming behind us. And that generation needs to understand sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, we must teach it to them or one day this pulpit will be occupied by some other gospel. And wouldn't that be tragic? So what do you believe this morning? You believe in the inerrancy and the finality of God's word. That all doctrine must come from this book. Otherwise, it is false doctrine. It does not negate somebody being a Christian, but it certainly does hinder their walk with the Lord. Would you stand with me and let's pray together.
Father, I thank you so much for these wonderful saints that have gone on before us, for Mary. What a fantastic woman she must have been and is. What a sovereign choice you made. Every Jewish girl prayed that she would be the mother of Messiah. And yet you chose her, even before the foundation of the world. You knew and you elected her to be the one who would carry the incarnate word of the living God. We thank you that you have crushed the head of Satan and that in so doing, Lord, our eternal destiny is sure. Nothing can separate us from your love because his power, his dominion has been overcome. And one day you will come with your church. You will come and burst forth in those clouds and you will bind that old dragon and you will cast him into the outer darkness, into the lake of fire, where he will eternally pay for his pride and his evil. Until that day, Lord, we have work to do. You've called us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to this book, to never, ever digress from it, to get our next generation to own it so that young preachers will grow up Young models of ministry will grow up. Teachers who love the Lord, lawyers who love the Lord, doctors who love the Lord, blue-collar workers who love the Lord will emerge out of these young people and they will take that gospel with them unapologetically, unashamed, without compromise, and declare you to be the seed of the woman. Thank you, Father, for your love and your mercy to us. Now may the grace of God, the love of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ, the very presence, person, and power of his Holy Spirit abide with each of you now until Christ comes again and forevermore. Amen.